I think there are three things right from the start to work at. Do you have the same patterns of intimacy, passion, and commitment? Second, do you have enough of them to make the relationship work? And third, are you being realistic? Oh, yeah. Intimacy, passion, commitment, expectations. Two people with different desires. No wonder love and relationships are hard. I'm not surprised at all. Not at all. Dr. Robert Sternberg is a professor of human development at Cornell. He's written extensively on love since the early 80s. His new book is called The New Psychology of Love, written and co-edited by him and his wife, Karen. And we explore the triangular theory of love, this idea that we are attached to our love story, and also that people can say, I love you, and mean completely different things. My definition of love is not the same as your definition of love. We explore this idea that relationships need maintenance and that sometimes no matter how much work you do, they're just fundamentally not compatible. And how devastating it is to realize that all this work you've put in and it doesn't matter how much more you you put in, it might not work. Bob and I go deep on what it means to be committed and to build intimacy and to have passion in your relationship. My name is Sean Galanos, and this is The Love Drive. Could you please introduce yourself? I'm Bob Sternberg. I'm a professor of human development at Cornell University uh, and an honorary professor of psychology at Heidelberg University in Germany. Uh, One of my main areas of research over the years has been love. I've published a number of books in the field. Most recently, I've co-edited with my wife, Karen Sternberg. Uh, who's also a psychologist, a book called The New Psychology of Love, which is published by Cambridge University Press. It just came out this year. And I also am co-founder with my wife, Karen, of a website, uh, lovemultiverse.com. And anyone who would like more information on anything I talk about today could find it at lovemultiverse.com. So that's about me. I should mention that uh, Karen and I have been married for a number of years. She's German, and we have eight-year-old triplets. Uh, so we're pretty busy people. <laughs> How's your sleep these days? Uh, my sleep is not as great as my busyness, unfortunately. You started writing about love around the time I was born, if I'm not mistaken, in the early 80s. I'm curious, why love as an area of research for you? I decided to start 
studying love for the same reason I've studied everything else. I study things I don't do very well, or at least I've had problems with. So I started studying intelligence uh, when I was young because I did poorly on IQ tests. I started studying creativity because at one point I ran out of ideas. Uh, And I started studying love when I was in a relationship that wasn't going very well. And I was trying to figure out why. Did you find the answer to why it wasn't going very well? I think I did find the answer. And um, soon thereafter, my ex-wife and I uh, parted ways. It just wasn't going to work. Sometimes, you know, sometimes you can make things work and sometimes you can't. And this was a case where it just wasn't going to work. What is it about love that is so darn complicated? I think what makes love complicated is that you need so many different things to make it succeed. And we could get into that more in the podcast, but you need to have, most of all, similar views of what you even mean by love. So my view over the years has been that what people do and what I have to admit I did when I was younger is they're quick to look for just basic similarities. And those are important, like, uh, do we have the same values? Do we have the same perhaps political views or religion or uh, things we like to do in our free time? Or do we go to bed at about the same time and wake up at the same time? We look for things that are sort of superficially similar. And that's a good thing to do because you want to be with someone who you can have fun with and do related things. Uh, But I think where things tend to go wrong is when each person says, I love you, but they mean really different things by it. But they don't know they mean different things by it. It's not that they're being dishonest or somehow deceitful. It's that they just have really different conceptions of love. And the result is, after a while, especially when you're in a very close relationship, those differences begin to grate. And often you don't know why they're grating because you don't realize that the problems are coming from your different ideas of what you mean by love. Is the answer to explore at the beginning of a relationship what we both mean by the word love? I think it really does help to explore what you mean by love, to go beyond the I love you, or I'm really happy with you. Uh, Let me give you an example. When I started, uh, pretty close to when I started studying love, I uh, proposed a sort of, you might say, match theory. I called it a triangular theory. And the idea was that there are three components, three big components of love. One is intimacy which is how how close you feel to someone, how much you trust them, uh, the confidence in you have in them, your respect for them, uh, your feeling that this is somebody I really can communicate with and share ideas and feelings with. Uh, intimacy is the basic ingredient of a good friendship. So that's one of these components. And then there's a second component, which is quite different, and that's passion. And that's kind of, when you get down to it, how 
hot the relationship is, uh, how much you feel you need the person, how much you really want them, how much you can't imagine life without them, how much they turn you on. You're feeling that this really is my life. This is what I have to have in my life. Hmm. And then the third component is commitment. And that is, are you in this for keeps? Is this someone that you really, really will stay with regardless of what happens? If they get sick, if you get sick, if your interests change, if economic times get hard, uh, if things aren't going well with the kids. And there's a difference between sort of saying that in your marriage ceremony or uh, some other kind of commitment ceremony and really feeling like this is it for me. And an example of what I'm talking about with this matching of how you love another person is two people could say they love each other. And one, for example, could stress intimacy. For me, it's really important that we are connected, uh, that we can talk, that we can share ideas, that we can trust each other, that I don't have to sort of be looking at my back, that you have my back and I have your back. And for another person, they may say, I love you. And, and they're really talking, say, about the passion component. Uh, for them, it's really important to uh, feel that, wow, I am just so excited and so turned on and so wowed by this relationship. And like, this is just the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Now, both of them can say, I love you. But even in that very simple case, you can see how over some amount of time, the differences could begin to grate, could begin to make it feel like uh, we don't want the same thing. Or if one person really emphasizes commitment, you know, maybe they've been looking for a while and they feel, I really need to find someone with whom I can settle down. You know, I've had enough of the blind dates and the internet failures and, uh, you know, going to these uh, meetings that I never wanted to go to anyway. And I really need someone for keeps. Whereas the other person feels like they're in the exploratory phase. Yeah, I'd like to make this work, but I am just not there yet. I, I wouldn't commit myself to anyone. So they both could feel they love the other person, but for one, commitment is a driving force. And for the other, it's, you know, it's just not something they're ready for. And so in terms of this kind of triangle, you know, which is a pretty simple idea, if you don't have the same profile, it's hard over the long term to make a relationship work. And you may never even talk about these things. You may talk about your politics. You may talk about your views on money. You may talk about your views of having children. Yet, in the long run, if you don't match in intimacy, passion, and commitment, it's harder to make it work. That's an example. I love the idea of the triangle, the concept. I can also imagine that it must be really hard to match up with somebody on those three vertices because we're people and we change our needs, our desires, where we're going in life, our ambitions. That's all fluctuating for any one person. So put two people together 
and then try to get the triangles to match up, I can I can imagine that it must be really challenging for a lot of people. Yes, that is uh, certainly true. That triangles can change over time, and they do. Uh, very soon on our lovemultiverse.com website, we're actually going to be having a love quiz, which is something I have uh, studied and researched over a number of years. It's not up yet, but will be shortly. And one thing you actually can do with that kind of quiz is uh, test yourself, and uh, your partner can test him or herself, and you can sort of look at how you match up over time. It's sort of like a tune-up. And if you find that you're starting to diverge, uh, it's great to talk about it as it's starting to happen rather than, you know, the years pass by and more and more you feel like something is wrong, but you can't quite figure out what it is. There's another aspect to my theory. I call it love is a story, and we could talk about the details more later. But the reason I mention it is that one of the kinds of stories is what I call a travel story. And a travel story is where two people view themselves as traveling through life together. And they realize at times their paths may go in slightly different directions. It's very hard for two people to walk holding hands at the exact same distance forever and ever. But if you have a travel story, then what you try to do is even if locally sometimes your past diverge, uh, maybe one of you is called away for a job or uh, because of the sickness of a relative or whatever, you try to keep traveling together. So if you have a travel story, then you recognize that sometimes you won't be on quite the same path and your goal is to get back on the same path together. One of the things that I love about the travel story, which is one of the stories that I identified with, I took one of the story tests on psychology today that highlighted nine of the stories. So an excerpt Mm -hmm. from one of your books. And I identified really strongly with, with the traveler story. And I feel like that's a good story to identify with because if you both realize that you're travelers, sometimes the travel takes you in different directions. Right. And if you have a strong commitment vertis, ver, ver, vertis, what is just the single vertex? Yeah. If that's strong in the triangle, then you can commit to going separate ways for a bit and meeting up again after two, three months. And not having to worry about it. I think the driver is exactly what you said, Sean. And that is, if you don't have pretty huge dose of the commitment component, you're always going to be worried that maybe after the summer when we're apart, or maybe after you take that job in another city, uh, it's going to be kaput for the relationship. But if you have the commitment, then you can feel at least more comfortable uh, being on slightly different paths, at least for a short amount of time and maybe a longer amount of time. I was talking to a friend yesterday and we came up with this idea of proactive relationship design. So getting together with your partner and together figuring out what do we want this relationship to look like in the short term, medium term, long term. And one of uh, an example of that that I came up with is that I would like my partner and I to have perhaps 
two places that we live, a warm place and a cooler place, and that we can spend time together in each of those places and also separately. And not only that, but we can build in time in our life, right? In our in our year and say, okay, March and April, I'm going to be spending my time in this home. And I'd like for that to be alone because I want to do my solo projects. And then we'll we'll get back together after that. Rather than having to take a break because you feel suffocated in your relationship. So this idea that we can actively design the kind of relationship that we want rather than haphazardly letting it unfold without any sort of intention. I think that's a great way of looking at it because relationships are created and you might say they're co-constructed. And of course, the one thing you want to make sure of is that they're truly co-constructed. Trick, especially in the beginning, is that Sometimes people will say, yeah, that sounds good to me because they so much want to make the relationship work that they're willing to give up a little more than they're comfortable with. I don't know if you've ever been in that position, but Mm -hmm. they just really don't want to do anything that's going to screw it up. Uh, And then over time, things that they may have agreed to earlier on that were a little too much of a stretch for them begin to get more challenging. So I think the important thing with this kind of active co-construction is that you not look at it uh, as I built a building and now it'll take care of itself, but that you do the maintenance. It's kind of like I'm in the university business. I used to be an administrator. And one of the things you learn is that if you don't keep up the maintenance, the cost is much greater with buildings that are deteriorated than if you constantly kept them in reasonable shape. And I think it's the same with a relationship like the buildings, that if you let things, if you have the view that it's just going to take care of itself, uh, you're often in trouble. So you need to keep monitoring to make sure that what's working now will work in the future because sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. The check-in early and often. Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. You can tell who's the professor. I mean, you know, it took me, what, uh, 20 minutes to say what you just said in about four seconds. <laughs> I've been thinking about this concept a lot. I mean, it's it's uh, everything requires maintenance. You know, I was thinking about my car. It, when I when I neglect it, when I go to the garage, it ends up costing more than if I had just, you know, changed the oil and the spark plugs at a regular interval. And relationships are the same. They they need inventory taking every now and then. And it's not only maintenance. Sometimes the cars or, you know, I play the cello or the musical instrument needs some rebuilding. Parts of it not only need to be maintained, but sometimes they just have to be uh, replaced to make the whole structure better. So sometimes... You not only do maintenance, but you're saying maybe we need to add, you know, in metaphorically add a room or add a part or uh, take away a part and uh, rebuild it as time goes on. Perhaps there's something fundamentally challenging about a relationship. And if we don't address it, it will never get better. 
it's really important for couples as much as they can to avoid the blame game. Uh, when things go wrong, uh, either immediately blaming the other person or immediately blaming themselves. Uh, because a relationship is always about two people co-constructing. And if things aren't going well, assigning blame is sometimes not the most productive path. It's how can the two of you together figure out a way to make it better. The way I've heard that presented is rather than me and my partner sitting across from each other with a problem in the middle, let's sit next to each other, side by side, with the problem in front of us. The problem isn't us. It's this is this dynamic that shows up between you and I. Yeah, I think that's good. And, you know, as I was saying, when I, you know, I got my first marriage, there were two wonderful kids that came. And it's very easy to point to all the things that the other person did that you don't like. And they could point to the things they, you know, you did, they don't like. But in the end, uh, what leads relationships to fail for the most part is some kind of incompatibility that you're just looking for or ready for or needing different things. And by constantly monitoring your relationship, you can see whether you're still supplying those different things. That said, uh, so one thing you want to know right at the start with the tri- let me start with the triangle is I said that the match is really important that your what you need in terms of intimacy, passion, and commitment is about the same as what the other person needs. But there are two other things uh, I might mention about the triangle. One is you could both have the same triangle, but metaphorically, it's just too small. In other words, maybe you're in a relationship where there's not much intimacy, not much passion, and not much commitment, and you're both happy with this sort of low involvement, low investment relationship. But over the long run, it's hard to make it work, even if you're compatible, because there's just not enough there. Uh, It's like building a car that is too flimsy or a house that's too flimsy. So the second thing beside compatibility is you need enough of intimacy, passion, and commitment, you know, regardless of patterns to keep it going. And I think the third thing that people should be aware of is that sometimes relationships fail because what they want is just not realistic. Uh, you know, we see Hollywood movies, uh, we see media, various kinds, we read books. Uh, and sometimes, you know, we have this Hollywood view that, you know, they you want a relationship that you really don't get in real life. I mean, you know, you're, uh, you're looking for, uh, you know, some kind of movie star uh, or a uh, guy who's a big hunk and who's going to stay that way forever. And what you want just doesn't correspond to what happens outside of movies. So I think the third thing with regard to intimacy, passion, and commitment is to be realistic, that you can't expect your partner, for example, with regard to intimacy, to be spilling his or her guts out to you all of the time. Uh, you can't expect 
uh, to have hot passion. Uh, oh, you know, I need you, I need you, I need you every moment of the day or over, you know, extended periods of time without pause. Um, and you have to be real realistic that at times your commitment may be challenged by events in your lives. And that is something you may have to work with. So I think there are three things right from the start to work at. Do you have the same patterns of intimacy, passion, and commitment? Second, do you have enough of them to make the relationship work? And third, are you being realistic? Mm. This reminds me of this part in uh, the book that I read by the Gottmans. Uh-huh. And seven keys to relationship success or merit, marital success. And they did a bunch of studies uh, at their love lab in Seattle. I, I think it's called the love lab. It was basically an apartment where they would bring couples in for the weekend and then monitor them, like study them, right? And study. And mm-hmm. they, they said that within five minutes, they could, they could figure out whether a couple was going to stay together just by, by watching five minutes of their argument. And they said one of the fascinating things is that most of what they observed over a 24 or 48 hour period was utterly boring, was stuff that would never make it into a movie. And, you know, I think one of the examples was uh, the man is reading a newspaper and, and and the woman says, oh, look, that sailboat reminds me of the sailboat that we were on, you know, seven years ago in Greece. And he looks down and he looks at the at the sailboat and he goes, yeah, you're right. And then he goes back to his paper, a very benign scene that would never make it in a Hollywood movie, but that speaks to the fact that long-term relationships are filled with just moments that are not very exciting. And that's kind of how it is. And it's unrealistic to expect that it will always be exciting. It will always be passionate. Intimacy will be flowing. We will always choose each other on a daily basis. And that doesn't sound very realistic. And we're often bombarded with this message that relationships need to be exciting for them to to be long-lasting. Right. And you you and the Gottmans, uh, of course, uh, made a very important point, and that is the way... Every couple has arguments sooner or later. The way you argue is really important. Uh, when I was in graduate school and things didn't work on the computer, sometimes what the computer consultants would do is give you what was called a core dump. And that would show everything in the computer's memory where you would try to figure out what is it in there that's uh, screwing things up here. And uh, a really bad way to argue is as soon as things start to go wrong, you do a core dump. And that is, uh, well, let me tell you everything about you I really can't stand. So instead of sticking to the issue and talking rationally and reasonably about it, you start bringing in all this other crap. Uh, you know, stuff that happened five years ago, 10 years ago, that has nothing to do with anything you're discussing now. And it makes it almost impossible to resolve the argument because you're always getting off the topic. Well, and also, I feel that most of the time that we're angry about something, it's not really about that thing. 
Yes. It's about something else. It's about a, uh, another trigger or a trauma or even something that's unrelated to the relationship, some dynamic that's being played out from your childhood or from some past experience. And we in relationship are constantly re-triggered and we kind of have to get to the core of the issue. It's not about the whatever the dinner party that didn't come off perfectly or the for me it was a baguette you know my ex-girlfriend got the wrong baguette and i flipped out and it wasn't about the baguette you know it was something about much deeper it was like a core wound that had to be resolved and without it being resolved we're gonna we were destined to have the same argument over and over and over again with a different object Yes, in some of my love writings, I've made a similar point, and that is when you keep having the same argument or similar arguments over and over again, the chances are pretty high that whatever it is you're arguing about isn't really what's at issue. And then what you need to do is ask yourselves, uh, why do we keep coming back to this, especially when it, it doesn't seem very important, like the particular baguette. I, I mentioned that I do work on things like uh, thinking and uh, intelligence. And, you know, one of the problems in our society is that schools spend a lot of time teaching you to solve problems. They give you a problem and you have to solve it. So my eight-year-old triplets will come home and they'll have a you know, some homework problems of math problems or reading problems, and they have to solve them. But in real life, it's quite different. There's no one to tell you what the problem is. And I think a problem with the way we're schooled is we put so much emphasis on here's the problem, you solve it. And sometimes we even give the kids multiple choices, whereas in life, you don't know what the problem is. You have to figure out, you have to first recognize that something's wrong and then you have to figure out what it is. And even from the time kids are young, schools, I think, need to spend more time with them, helping them to recognize when something's wrong and then to figure out what it is. Because in relationships, often by the time you recognize that there's a problem, it's like, what happens with pancreatic cancer. By the time you recognize you have it, you're too late. So doing those early, uh, is something wrong here? And if so, let's try to figure out what it is. That's really important. I interviewed uh, Dr. Alexandra Solomon, who wrote a book called Loving Bravely. And, in, and one of her suggestions in the book is as soon as one of the two parties in the couple wants to go to therapy for an issue in the relationship, you go. That's that's the benchmark. Does somebody want to go? Okay, let's go. Let's go to solve this thing that for one person requires a third-party professional. And that's hard. I, I'm of the school of thought that we need therapy to help figure out dynamics that we're just not aware of. Like We need a third-party observer to figure it out. And I think a lot of people would, would disagree or feel really uncomfortable with the idea that they would be sharing their issues with a therapist or a psychologist or a psychiatrist or whatever. And I don't know how to, how to move forward sometimes without uh, intervention. Yes, I think that's, that's true. And it also tells you uh, another thing, and that is if you want to go for help and your partner doesn't, 
that tells you something. And what you need to do is figure out what it is. So one possibility, as you said, uh, is that they don't feel comfortable talking to a third party. Uh, although if things are in distress, it might be better to talk to a third party than see things fall apart totally. Uh, the other thing is that uh, if both people don't really want to make things better, then it's extremely hard to make them better. Sometimes one person is satisfied or, you know, they they may feel like their level of intimacy or a level of passion is low and that's just fine with me. Uh, at the worst, they're having an affair with someone else, so they don't really want to work on their first relationship. But uh, to make things work, you really need two people. It's like the expression, it takes two to tango. You need two people who really want to work to make things better. If just one does, uh, you know, the, the truth is in the action. Uh, the, if, if they don't want to act on it, it doesn't matter what they say, nothing will happen. Yeah. Two things that come to mind immediately is that you're right. Some people are invested in keeping the relationship as it is. And going to a therapist is going to fuck it up because they're happy. They're happy the way with the way they are. Like you said, they might be having an affair or they just don't want to change. Yeah. And going to a therapist is going to, is going to mess that up. And also, I get a lot of questions around how can I get my partner to do this? And the answer that I almost always give is you can't. You can't get anyone to do anything they don't want to do. An alcoholic who's not ready to seek treatment will not seek treatment, no matter how many people say, you need to seek treatment. We have to want to change. And sometimes there's an incompatibility where you want your partner to see this this way or to make this behavioral modification and they just don't want to do it. And no amount of manipulating or presenting a different perspective or saying it a different way will get them to, the, to your desired outcome. Yeah. And the other thing, in addition to that, is you have to ask yourself, why you think your desired outcome is so important as opposed to a mutually desired outcome. If you're in a relationship and you look at it as, what can my partner do for me? Uh, you're already in trouble. Uh, it has to be a shared uh, view of what can they do for me, but also what can I do for them. And if uh, we want different things, is there some way we can meet in the middle? But it's very hard to be with someone who always has to have it his or her own way. And I think that there are some studies that show that narcissism is on the increase, uh, that people are more and more preoccupied with themselves. And when you're totally immersed in yourself, it makes it really hard to have a successful relationship. Mm. Well, there's no room for the other. Yeah. You, you know, what I find in my own marriage is I think one thing that works really well for Karen and me is we, we try very hard to put the other first. Uh, and if we're each trying to put the other first, then things usually come out pretty well. Wow. I love that. Let's each try to put the other first. To me, what I hear when you say that is that I really want what's best for my partner. And sometimes that goes against what I ultimately want for myself. And I'm still 
going to present that as an option because I want what's best for them. Because I know she's doing the same thing. And what works is that, you know, there's some da- domains that are more important to her and there's some da- domains that are more important to me. Like she's really into food. So with restaurants, you know, we almost always go where she wants because it's just not as important mm. to me as it is to her. And there are other things that are more important to me. Um, you know, sometimes I'd really like to visit a place. And I, she's always been very accommodating uh, with our visiting the place. So we find, we find, at least for us, a balance that works. You know, I think that the driving story we have us talking about stories underlying relationships, and uh, we have a kind of fairy tale story uh, with a prince and princess. I actually call her princess. I probably shouldn't say that, but anyway. Uh, and so that's sort of intrinsic to our story, but it may not be intrinsic to someone else's story. And you know, we were talking before about relationships that are kind of doomed from the start because either uh, the people don't have compatible love triangles or they don't have enough of the three ingredients or they're unrealistic. But it's also true that some stories about love just tend to fail. So the travel story that we talked about uh, is one that can be quite successful in the I think the fairy tale story can work pretty well, but we've found that certain stories tend to be associated with failure. Uh, for example, uh, one is a pornography story. Uh, you can figure out what that is, uh, where you look at love is kind of dirty, and that doesn't work well in a long-term marriage uh, or a long-term relationship. Uh, another that doesn't work well is a horror story uh, where one person is a terrorizer and the other is a victim. And you might think that, well, you know, who would ever want to be a victim? But some people through their early socialization and their experiences without consciously realizing it uh, can place themselves into victim roles. That may not be what they intend to do, but they tend to end up in that kind of role. And that also doesn't work. A police story tends to fail where one person acts like a police officer and the other like a criminal who's always on the run. So it's useful to know something about your stories uh, because if your stories are ones that tend to be maladaptive or their mismatches, that can be a problem too. So if two people have a fairy tale story, that can work really well. And if two people have a business story, that can work really well. Uh, they both look at a relationship as like a business. Uh, we're co-CEOs here and you know we manage a house and we manage finances and we manage kids and we manage uh, maybe some people who help with the house and we manage our taxes. But if it, so, two people with a business story is fine. Two people can be fine with a fairy tale story. But if you put together one person who has a fairy tale story and the other with a business story, even though they both can have integrity when they say "I love you," they just have such different stories. It's hard to make it work. Yeah, a fairy tale might have a lot of intimacy, a lot of passion, and maybe the business one would have a lot more commitment and 
probably passion as well. And that makes the triangle a little funky as well. Yeah, business stories tend actually to be somewhat low on passion. Uh, they're more in the commitment tends to be to the business, to the relationship as an ongoing business. And the thing is, it's not that there's anything wrong with that uh, any more than there's anything wrong with a travel story or fairy tale story or uh, whatever. Uh, it's it's a matter of finding someone who's looking for the same things, and those things are not maladaptive. Another story, for example, this maladaptive is an art story where you're looking for a partner who just looks great all the time. And as we know, as we get older, it, uh, we don't look as great. I mean, you know, of course, uh, we'd like to imagine we all look like Brad Pitt if we're men or Angelina Jolie or whatever. But as time goes on, um, our appearance does change. And so it's hard to keep an art story going as opposed to then looking for someone who is younger and perhaps fits into that story better. Mm, right. Upgrade. Upgrade your model. An upgrade, yeah. Or yeah. A, downgrade, depending. A new Honda Odyssey. Yeah. Or what, Or maybe a different brand of car. Probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little Ferrari, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but when you were talking about the uh, sort of adjustments that you and Karen make, I was thinking about uh, The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. And, and I still really haven't found a definition of love that I like more than his. He posits that love is the extension of oneself for the spiritual growth of another. Yeah. And I think that's... Uh, very good uh, definition. Art Aaron, in his, he's a psychologist at Stony Brook, in his conception of love, uh, talks about the importance of your feeling like you're growing in a relationship, uh, that you're becoming more and more the person you'd really like to be, that you're learning from it and developing. And uh, I think that that's important too. Sometimes we're in relationships where we don't like who we are in the relationship. Mm. You know, it's sort of like we've given up too much of ourselves to be in a relationship with somebody. And then we may find that we not only are liking the other person less, but we're liking ourselves less because we all have in us the ability to be people we don't like very much. So one thing you need to ask yourself is not only how am I liking or loving the other person, but how am I feeling about myself in this relationship? Uh, am I becoming more and more the person I really want to be, or am I becoming more and more perhaps the person the other person, the my partner wants me to be, but a person who is just, I'm not cut out to be that person. Mm, wow. Yeah, I like this idea of growing in relationship, and I just think about this supportive nature of relationships, right? Life is hard enough as it is. Let's let's value and prioritize relationships with people that support us and and help us grow and are there when we need them and sort of push us to be a better version of ourselves. Yeah, and sometimes that will mean supporting the other person in things that to you may not have all that much personal meaning. For example, in my own case, 
uh, Karen is a black belt in karate and a brown belt in judo and uh, is going for a blue belt in kung fu. And the whole idea of martial arts, you would have to drag me uh, (laughs) very hard to get me to do any of those things. But I really respect and admire her for doing something different from anything I do. And I have some peculiarities too. I collect weird things that she just totally doesn't understand why I'd be interested. And she supports my peculiarities. So I think that it's part of this growth is allowing the person to become themselves, more of themselves, uh, even if it's not quite what you would have imagined for yourself. At the same time, there are things that you can grow together with, like the website, you know, this uh, lovemultiverse.com website is a new joint project for us. And she really has spearheaded that. I, I'm a college professor, so I've been publishing articles and books for years. But I now, you know, I never seriously got into a website. And she's kind of brought me to that. So I think that you really can grow a lot in ways you'd never expect through having a relationship with someone who constantly is looking out for you and you're looking out for them. And I love that you don't have to have everything in common, right? I mean, some common ground is great. The the love multiverse, uh, going out to restaurants, important for her. You're happy to do it. You're happy for her to pick because it means a lot to her. Going to visit places that are important for you, she's happy to come along because it makes you happy. So we don't all have to do the same stuff, but can we come together on some of it? And can we celebrate and admire the other things that we don't particularly connect with rather than maybe put them down because we don't understand them? Yeah, and I I think another thing is that when you have children, uh, as I mentioned, we have triplets, and I have two older children from my first marriage. I think it's really important. Sometimes you'll have in mind slightly different things for the kids. You know, your image of who your kid will become is different from your partner's. We're having uh, just a bit of an issue like that right now that uh, I'm encouraged. Sammy, my the boy triplet, is uh, playing the cello, which I play. And the girls, I was kind of hoping they'd play the violin. And Karen is a very good uh, pianist, and she's hoping they'll play the piano. I play the piano a little. Uh, but you know, what we have told the kids again and again is they can't help seeing that I have a slight preference for violin and Karen has a slight preference for piano, but that it's not about us. It's about them. And as a parent uh, or as a guardian, when you have kids, part of the whole thing is letting go of who you want them to be, uh, who you want, your partner wants, and and emphasizing to them that what what is important is that they become the person they want to be. So we keep emphasizing to them that, you know, if they want violin or piano or flute or trombone or nothing and to do something else, <laughs> that we want them to become, I mean, my son, Seth, when he told me I was going to play the trumpet, I almost fell over. You know, I, I've never been a fan of the trumpet. And then my daughter, Sarah, tells me she wants to play the oboe. Like, wh- where did these kids come from? Uh, but in the end, um, 
you have to let go of what you have in mind for the kids and what they become may bear no resemblance to what you had in mind. You just want them to become something that's meaningful and constructive in their own lives. And that applies to your partner. That's right. Absolutely. You let go of what you think or what you want them to become and you support and nurture what they ultimately want to become and what they, they strive to be. That is so true. And I am just looping back to the stories. One of the, one of the stories that I resonated with was also the gardening story, right? The relationships need to be nurtured and tended to. And you can't just let them go. You can't say, well, you know, for the next six six months, I really have a lot of work to do, so I won't be around for six months. Um, You you can't always physically be there, and sometimes you're really busy. But even when you're busy, you still need to water a guard. And you still, even if you're sort of having other things you have to pay attention to, uh, it's very easy always to put the relationship last because you can do it tomorrow or the next day or the next month or in the next six months. And then by the time you get back to it, uh, the plant is withered and died, if you know what I mean. Yeah, or it's overgrown. It's, 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 you don't know what to do with it anymore. You might as well just burn the whole thing to the ground. Right, yes. <laughs> I, I, I would prefer to tend to a garden on a regular basis and harvest the fruits of that labor. Because the point of being in a relationship is to also experience love and admiration and intimacy and closeness and the joy and the bliss that comes from committed relationship. And that stuff yeah. takes work. Yeah. It takes a lot of work. I think that uh, that if you look at it in terms of gardens, there are some plants that are annuals and there are some that are perennials. Uh, and if you're ready for a committed relationship, you have to look at it as a perennial, that after you harvest the fruit for that year, uh, new fruit is going to go. And it might grow in different directions and not to view it as I've har- har- harvested the fruit check time to move on yeah let's next ne- what's next in next my, in, yeah, <laughs> next. next in my life <laughs> yeah that's yeah, so you can you can harvest the fruits for the rest of your life if you te- if you tend to it well but also realize that there's some relationships you will be in that will end up being annuals in, in effect that they're just not meant to last and that's okay too it's just something you want to learn early. Yeah, I, I think it's really important that you highlighted that because some people will tend to a garden that is not bearing any fruit and they'll they'll try to do it differently and they'll angle it this way and they'll water it more and less and they'll use miracle grow and, and it doesn't matter what you do, that garden will not produce fruit. It just won't. Right, exactly right. It's not yeah. meant to be. Yeah, it's not meant to be and that's okay too. And it's better to recognize that and to be straight with yourself and straight with your partner than to try to keep something going that isn't working. I have a very good friend and colleague who has been in a failing relationship for a really long time. And every time I write to her, uh, she's talking about how the relationship isn't going well, but she's so busy, you know, with this thing and that thing and 
she's not feeling well and you know she has a kid from a previous marriage and the the outcome is you, you know your life can just pass you by too so if things aren't working out uh either have to try to get them to work or just say all right i'm going to be content with a bit less or move on but not spend your whole life complaining about how well you know maybe next year maybe next year maybe next year and uh you you spend your life unhappy i want to recognize how hard it is to leave a relationship and people stay in relationships for all sorts of reasons because they see the potential in a relationship that's unrealized or because they hope that it can get better or maybe it can get to what it was a few years ago and I always wonder, what would happen if you let that relationship go? What would happen to your life? What would come in and fill the space that's now created from trying to make something that doesn't work? I'm always curious. And I got to imagine, I, I, maybe I'm just an optimist, but I got to imagine there's something better around the corner when, when it's just not working and you have really given it a good old college try. Yeah, and also that you can say to yourself honestly that your expectations are realistic. There are a whole bunch of uh, country and Western songs and rock songs about the person you let go and then you're sorry you did. Uh, and sometimes you're just wanting more than any relationship really can give. So I think it's important sometimes to say this just isn't going to work. But before you do that, make sure that the expectations you have are ones that any relationship reasonably could meet. You were talking about the Gottman work where most of the time it's pretty boring. And that's the way it is. So the next one, you know, it's exciting when uh, you start, but then you will get to the phase where you have to pay the bills and you have to mow the grass and put up the snow fence. I'm looking at our snow fence. Uh, and that stuff isn't real fun and games. So I, I would say it's important also to be very realistic in terms of what's possible. And then if you're sure you're being realistic, then it may be time to move on. I heard that real love starts after the honeymoon. You could put it that way. I would say that it's not so much that real love starts after the honeymoon, but that love changes, as we discussed. Uh, and, you know, it's like when you first meet someone, you can talk about your past relationships and all the things you did wrong and the partners did wrong and how you learn from it and you're going to be a better person and now you're ready for this relationship. But And that probably lasts about through the honeymoon. But then as time goes on, when things start to go wrong, they're in the current relationship. And it's much easier to talk about what other partners did wrong and what you did wrong five years ago than it is to talk about what's going wrong right now. You know, that's kind of tough to bring up. So I think that part of what changes is that as problems arise, they're no longer in intimacy producing in the sense that they're about your history, but they're about your here and now. Mm. And you need to be ready to talk about those before uh, they sort of grow cancerous and, and get out of hand. 
And also there's an incredible amount of generosity at the beginning of a relationship. All sorts of things that might piss you off they don't. You find them cute and endearing. And wow, it's so amazing that you load the dishwasher that way. I've never seen anybody load the dishwasher that way. Yeah. And then after a while, when the generosity wears off, you realize that a lot of the things that you actually admired and drew you to the person and attracted to you, you to them, kind of drive you crazy. Yeah, that snoring isn't as cute as it seemed uh, the first <laughs> the first couple months. I'm always tired and you're still snoring. So yeah, there are an awful lot of things that you can easily forgive at the beginning that later on become increasingly annoying and that are, are things maybe that you need to discuss wearing some kind of face mask or something that prevents snoring or whatever it is. What I'm hearing is that uh, relationships are hard and they do take work, but for the most part, they're worth it. And um, you can tend to them like a garden and you can reasonably expect to harvest beautiful fruits from them. You know, I, I'd add something to that. And that is uh, when I I started as uh, an assistant professor, I was uh, 20, 25. And... At the time, I was very ambitious, and I thought, you know, well, this, uh, I want to be a big success in my career, and, you know, I was an assistant professor at Yale, and then I went to get tenure, and then I went to get to be a full professor, and blah, blah, blah. But when I look back as I get older, and, you know, sometimes people say, well, you have, you know, like, wow, all these publications, you know, over a thousand publications, and you've won all these awards. And and they ask me, well, what, you know, what, what meant the most to you? And I, I always come back with the same answer, and that is my family, that in the end, uh, if I were on my deathbed, what I would be, what would make me the happiest and most proud is not all the publication because you know as, as soon as someone announces they're going to retire their history i mean you know like who from the past really makes much difference they're the george washingtons and the abraham lincolns and the franklin roosevelts but very few of us are going to be like them uh most people even presidents you know you can hardly remember who they were and in the end i think for me Looking back over my life, and hopefully it's uh, far from over, but even now I'd say it's my wife and those five kids. Uh, those are those are where I've really been able to make a difference to the world, and honestly, where they've made so much of a difference to me. And every day they can make me happy. And if I write a crappy article and it get my colleagues tell me what a piece of crap it is and, you know, like, are you really getting <laughs> soft in the head? And, you know, have you thought about retirement lately? I mean, you know, you want to, yeah, you want to have a family that's there to support you unconditionally, that you're there for them, they're there for you. And it doesn't matter if you wrote a crappy article uh, or if you gave a bad talk. Um, a few weeks ago, I gave a recital, a cello recital, and man, I was so looking forward to that. I practiced this piece forever and ever, hundreds of times, and I get up there, and wow, did I screw that one up. I mean, I really sucked, and I couldn't believe that I was that bad. Of all the bad practice times I had, I got nervous, and I I was just unbelievably bad. 
And, you know, there were my, there was Karen and uh, Sammy and Brittany and Melody to tell me, now, they thought it was really pretty good and they really loved me and they don't care if I didn't think it was good. And, you know, and then I would see other people who would say, oh, good job. And, you know, that you'd see the snicker uh, trying to hide itself. So I think in the end, it's a love that's the most important thing you'll ever have in your life. And you may not realize that when you're 20 or 25, especially when you have big career ambitions. But no matter how much money you make, no matter how many houses you have or how great a car, in the end, it's your uh, partner and your family that will make the difference. And you could say your life meant something, that you had a purpose and that purpose was fulfilled. Hmm. Um, Frank Ostaseski, I'm probably mispronouncing his name, but has done a lot of work. Uh, around end of life and caring for people in hospice. And he said that on people's deathbeds, the number one question was, did I love and was I loved? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not, should I have worked more? Yeah. Should I have done this? It was, you know, did I love and was I loved? Yeah. And in the end, you look back and how much did all that work matter anyway? The, the office will move on fine when you're not there. Uh, the field you're in will move on fine. Uh, you're quickly replaced. It, it's your family that really makes the difference, your partner and uh, people associated with you. I feel like that's a beautiful place to end. All right. <laughs> and I'd like to know, where can we find you and your work? Well, you can find us uh, on Love Multiverse. Uh, it's love at multiverse.com. Uh, a recent book, uh, which I co-edited with my wife, is The New Psychology of Love, uh, published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, and I've also written many other things, but I think the lovemultiverse.com website gives a really pretty comprehensive picture. And what, this is probably obvious because we've, we've just been talking about it for the last hour, but what does love mean to you? What love means to me is, because I have a fairy tale story, uh, I was looking for a princess and I found one. And with my whole family, it means that uh, I put them first, uh, they put me first. And so everybody is uh, well taken care of. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. A pleasure talking to you. Let's stay in touch. Hey, lovebirds. Thanks again for choosing to spend this hour with me and Bob this week. I know your time is precious and that you are bombarded with content everywhere you look all the time. And you took an hour out of your week to listen to this conversation about love and relationships and intimacy and emotional wellness. And that means a lot to me. And I can imagine that you're doing it because you're getting something out of it. It's helpful. And that's why I do this. I do this work because I want to help. I want people to have the kinds of relationships that they are proud of 
And I also want people to be emotionally well with themselves, whether or not they're in a romantic relationship. That's really what I want. I want you to be okay. I send emails now, twice weekly reminders that love is real in your inbox. I think it's a nice way to start the morning sometimes. Get us off on the right foot. If you want to join the newsletter, go to thelovedrive.com forward slash newsletter to get twice weekly reminders that love is real. Because at the end of the day, what else really matters more than love? Was I loved and did I love? Those are the two most important questions that people ask themselves on their deathbed. And I want that answer to be yes for me and for you. Have a beautiful week.